Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Utilizing low-dose radiation scans that reveal cancers, cardiac issues, precursors of dementia, and more. Information about early health screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. When a federal court ruled this week that Georgia's restrictive abortion law could take effect, the fallout happened almost immediately. As of now, abortion clinics are not able to provide abortion services once fetal cardiac activity is detected, which is typically around six weeks. That's Allison Kaufman with the Amplified Georgia Collaborative, a coalition of reproductive rights groups and abortion providers. At the Feminist Women's Health Center, an abortion provider in Atlanta, director Kwajalein Jackson says the staff had to start canceling some appointments. But she told our colleague Jess Mador that the center remains open. We will continue to provide abortion care up to six weeks. We will continue to provide miscarriage management where there is no cardiac activity detected. We will continue to support patients, and we believe that we'll be able to continue to do that without closing our doors or laying off staff or suspending our programming. The political reaction happened quickly, too. Good afternoon, everyone. Since taking office in 2019, our family has committed to serving Georgia in a way that cherishes and values each and every human being. Republican Governor Brian Kemp lauded the court ruling. Today's decision by the 11th Circuit affirms our promise to protect life at all stages. We are overjoyed that the court has paved the way for the implementation of Georgia's Life Act. In downtown Atlanta, Democrat Stacey Abrams ripped into Kemp for signing the restrictive abortion law. I'm not certain if the governor failed biology or simply failed morality, but either way, this law is wrong and it must be struck down and I will be the governor to repeal it. Abrams made it clear that abortion rights will be on the ballot this fall. We are telling women that they are second-class citizens in Georgia. And let me be clear, Brian Kemp is telling women they are second-class citizens in the state of Georgia. How are states, providers, and patients navigating a world without Roe v. Wade? And how might abortion affect the 2022 midterms? We'll talk to NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon, who covers abortion. I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor at WABE. I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios. And I'm Raul Bally, WABE politics reporter. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a campaign podcast from WABE. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an impact. I vote because I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Before we bring in Sarah to talk about the national landscape for abortion, let's talk about this week's news. Georgia's 2019 abortion law signed by Governor Brian Kemp had been tied up in litigation. Sam, what did this week's federal court ruling say? The court basically said that the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case, uh, that's the ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, found that there is no right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution. And so therefore, Georgia 
can prohibit them. Uh, The court issued a stay on the injunction that had been holding up the law until now, and so that means that the law can be implemented immediately, which caught many clinics off guard who thought there would be somewhat of a period while the case got sent back to the district court. Uh, We should note that there will be more challenges expected in state courts, so this isn't the end of the road, but for now, this law has been allowed to take effect. So, Raul, remind us what Georgia's restrictive abortion law does. So here are the key provisions. It bans abortion when there is, and this is the language in the law, a detectable human heartbeat. And that's roughly after about six weeks of pregnancy, even before some are even aware they're pregnant. Now, Georgia's old law was around 20 to 22 weeks of pregnancy. There are exceptions, including for rape and incest, but there has to be a police report in those cases. And then in the cases of medical emergencies, a lot of questions that are being asked about around those definitions and the role of providers and doctors when it comes to a medical emergency. Both parties had filed briefs late last Friday night, updating the arguments after the Dobbs decision. The state, of course, asked the federal appeals court to just allow Georgia's law to take effect. Emma, what did the abortion rights groups challenging the law say? You know, this news came even though in these briefs, plaintiffs did try to argue a different tack. They tried to sort of acknowledge that the direct abortion part of this law was going to be legal given the Roe v. Wade reversal. And they tried to focus on the personhood component of this law, the part of the law that includes an unborn child, an embryo with cardiac activity as a natural person under Georgia law. And that has broad reaching implications that we really don't know exactly the extent of right now. We know that it can include claiming an unborn child as a dependent on your taxes can qualify for child support for an unborn child can be counted in a population count. Um, but the the judge ruled that the law in its entirety would go into effect, including the personhood statute. So that is Georgia law right now. And all those questions about what personhood could mean are now very real and present. Raul, you were with both Kemp and Stacey Abrams in the hours after the ruling. How would this shape their campaigns? Let's start with Governor Kemp and one of the interesting things that that I think Sam and I have been trying to get is what is Governor Kemp's position down the road? You know, he's very much touting, you know, the implementation of Georgia's new abortion law. But but what's next? Does he want to move to a total ban from six weeks down to effectively zero weeks? So something we're going to watch. But something else we're hearing, something I heard from him at the state capitol and I did hear from other lawmakers is this focus on the additional lives that are going to come, you know, because of this law, because abortions being banned, kind of a real focus on resources. This is this is what we heard from the governor. As mothers navigate pregnancy, birth, parenthood, or alternative options to parenthood, like adoption, Georgia's public, private, and nonprofit sectors stand ready to provide the resources they need to be safe, healthy, and informed. As for Stacey Abrams, once again, it's what you would expect. She was angry. She hopes that abortion rights supporters will vote for her. But again, something interesting I heard was she was asked about voters who are balancing the issues with the economy and inflation versus abortion rights. And and again, this is what she had to say. The economy can change, but this law becomes the law of the land. And I would say to balance whether your immediate concerns about money 
outweigh your concerns about your constitutional protected rights. What the U.S. Supreme Court did was send abortion rights back to the states. It makes races for state representative more important, state senate more important, for governor more important, judges and district attorneys. Those elections become more important. I've heard all sides say that educating regular voters on this is also going to be important. So now we're going to turn to Sarah McCammon. Sarah has reported for NPR since 2015, first covering the 2016 campaign and then covering the Mid-Atlantic with a focus on abortion and reproductive rights. Sarah is also no stranger to Georgia. She spent time as a reporter for GPB based in Savannah. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, good to be here. So, Sarah, you used to be a campaign reporter. Now your beat is focused on America's social, political, and cultural divides. That includes abortion. I'm curious how you see the abortion debate, I guess, kind of illuminating our divided country in this moment. Yeah, well, um, I started covering the abortion beat, and it has really been my primary beat since the end of 2016, right after I came off covering the Trump campaign. And as you might imagine, it's become more and more the focus of my attention as events of the last several years have unfolded. But it's often described as a divisive issue, and that's true and also not true. I mean, the majority of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in some situations and not in others. But the divisive question is sort of where that line is drawn. And I think it's important to say up front that people who favor a very restrictive approach to abortion have outsized influence in our government, You know, in part because opponents of abortion rights have been working for many, many years at all levels of government, in some cases through efforts to sort of gerrymander state legislatures to pass restrictive abortion laws in state legislatures to get conservative judges appointed to the federal judiciary and most importantly to the U.S. Supreme Court and, of course, to elect U.S. senators who would sign off on those conservative nominees. That said, if you look at polling, there is a lot of nuance on this issue. The further along a person gets in a pregnancy, the more uh, Americans tend to favor restrictions on abortion. But I think overall, a majority of Americans are very supportive of abortion rights, especially earlier in pregnancy. And yet it continues to be an issue that, uh, particularly for the right, has been a campaign issue that activists have rallied around and that has been clearly very motivating to voters, which is something that I saw during the 2016 campaign. Yeah, so you kind of talked about this bridge from your work covering the campaign to work covering abortion, which is in many ways connected to campaign and the functioning of our government. But I'm wondering, like, what brought you to, to covering abortion? It had been an important issue in the campaign, certainly. You may remember that Donald Trump, when he was closing in on the Republican nomination in 2016, made a big stumble in how he talked about the issue when he was asked whether or not women who have abortions should be punished. And he initially said yes and had to walk that back under pressure from, um, in many cases, anti-abortion activists. You know, traditionally, that has been the view of the anti-abortion movement that seems to be shifting to some extent. And so that was a major issue. It was kind of a, a mess up on his part. And then as the campaign continued, particularly as I was covering, you know, the end of the primary and the general election, talking to lots of Republican voters, I met many people who at least stated that they didn't like a lot of things about Trump, but they were very concerned about the Supreme Court, which is often code for abortion. And, you know, I met a lot of voters who said they were voting for him largely for that reason. Uh, and so it's it had been an issue I'd been paying attention to. 
I could also see that it was going to be an important issue in the years to come. Now, did I fully anticipate where we are now? I can't say that I did, but Trump had promised during the campaign to nominate Supreme Court justices who would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so I knew that if there were any vacancies, there would be a lot of debate around those. And also, I was interested in the kinds of policy positions he would take when it came to federal policy around reproductive health and reproductive rights. How does now Georgia's roughly six-week abortion ban compare to what's happening in other states with abortion bans on the books? Well, what we've seen over the last several years, I think particularly since Trump took office, is a move by state legislatures in red states, largely Midwestern and Southern states, as well as some in the Mountain West, to pass restrictive abortion laws that at the time were clearly not going to stand up in federal court, would clearly be out of step with Roe v. Wade. So this six-week ban is a good example of that. Prior to the Dobbs decision in June, state laws like that would be sort of, you know, quickly blocked by the federal court system. But as I mentioned, you know, activists have been working for many years toward the goal of overturning Roe v. Wade, anti-abortion activists. And this was part of that strategy, to get a lot of state laws on the books that would be in position in case Roe were overturned. So Georgia's six-week ban passed in 2019 was part of a wave of similar laws that were passed in uh, many surrounding states. In addition to that, there are a lot of states that had old laws, pre-Roe v. Wade laws on the books. Uh, Many of those have been the subject of litigation and, and will be Abortion rights activists would argue in many cases that those old laws shouldn't be allowed to take effect for various reasons. So there's a lot of litigation around that. And then there are other categories of abortion restrictions that also have been activated since the Dobbs decision came down. I wanted to ask you a a little more about that fallout that you've been tracking around the country. You know, we've heard the stories about clinics closing. We've heard uh, issues for health care for women. What have you seen in states with laws similar to Georgia's 2019 law? Well, I was just in Louisiana in the days after the Dobbs decision came down. And Louisiana has a couple of different laws on the books that fall into different categories. But the similarity is that those abortion restrictions were in place already before the Dobbs decision came down. And state officials who oppose abortion rights tried to enact those laws almost immediately. There's been a lot of sort of legal back and forth uh, with abortion rights advocates, including the Center for Reproductive Rights, arguing that under Louisiana's state constitution, those laws should be uh, considered unconstitutional, which is kind of a newer argument that we're seeing in some of these states where abortion rights advocates say they can make the argument that even if the federal constitution, according to the Supreme Court, does not protect abortion access, sometimes state constitutions may include, for example, a right to privacy. We're seeing that argument in Florida, for example, and also in Louisiana. And so that, in Louisiana specifically, I was there as the clinic was reopening a couple of days after the Dobbs decision came down. Currently, at the moment that we're taping this, as my, my understanding is that abortion remains available in that state, but that could change. And that's really where a lot of states are. And I know that Georgia's law has been also litigated. This is what legal experts were predicting prior to 
the decision being handed down. There were many predictions of a lot of legal chaos, and we are certainly seeing that. We've seen, I think Louisiana is a good example, just sort of a back and forth about the, the status of the law and the status of access to abortion. And meanwhile, in places like Texas, the clinics had to shut down pretty quickly because that state has layers of restrictions as well. There's a lot of talk among the legal community here that the right to privacy argument could be stronger in the state courts in the future, too. And, and speaking of the legal challenges, one thing that plaintiffs are arguing and zeroing in on is this personhood component of Georgia's law, which other states have, as you know well. And I was just curious, from a higher level, like, why did these provisions end up in anti-abortion laws? And how are you seeing those kinds of provisions play out post-Dobbs? As I understand it, the goal of this strategy is to sort of roll back to the very beginning where the line is. Some of these laws, like Georgia's, for example, prohibit abortion after cardiac activity is detectable, around six weeks or so. But personhood laws would prevent abortion from the very, very beginning, and, and potentially even call into question treatments like Plan B or IVF, which can disrupt implantation. Um, you know, the medical community defines the beginning of a pregnancy as implantation, but uh, there are questions about what these kinds of laws could mean for, you know, fertilized eggs at any stage, even at the very, very early stages of pregnancy. Um, and it kind of remains to be seen how that will play out in courts. But the strategy is fundamentally to make abortion and possibly other reproductive health care treatments inaccessible, illegal. Now, I, I should say that the, the anti-abortion movement has been pushing back on the idea that this is about something like birth control or IVF. Um, they say it's not, but it is a concern I hear a lot, including from reproductive health care providers. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Georgia Votes 2022. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with Georgia Votes 2022 this week with NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon. Sarah, you mentioned you were just in Louisiana, and you talked a little bit about some of the legal back and forth over the status of the law in the state. But I'm curious, like, what are you hearing from providers, from clinics? Like, how much is this confusion over where the law is today versus where it might be tomorrow or next week or next month affecting how providers are are offering care? There's a tremendous amount of confusion. And there has been even before the Dobbs decision came down. Um, you know, I went to Texas at the beginning of the year to talk to a woman who'd been turned away from a hospital emergency room. I mean, she was treated, but they weren't able to provide her with the care that she wanted and the doctor said she needed after she came in 19 weeks pregnant with her water broken, you know, a stage of pregnancy where the fetus is not viable and where the pregnancy was essentially doomed. But because there was still a fetal heartbeat under the Texas law that was already in effect, the doctors could not terminate the pregnancy. And, you know, the, the standard of care, as doctors have told me, is to offer uh, termination in that, in that situation to prevent infection, sepsis, all kinds of side effects for the woman. So I'm seeing more and more reports of this kind of uncertainty about what doctors do and do not have a right to do. In general, 
as I talk to clinics and um, reproductive rights groups around the country, my sense is that they're erring on the side of caution. And when there's legal limbo, closing, not providing abortions, because the penalty for doing so, if they run afoul of the law uh, in the mind of a prosecutor, is heavy, heavy fines, loss of licensure, and in some cases, jail or prison time. The bottom line is that is that abortion is becoming increasingly inaccessible in many, many places, and in some places not accessible at all. Now, um, our colleague at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Maya Prabhu, reported this week on the number of abortions in Georgia and how they went up uh, last year by 4,000. Overall, Georgia had about 35,000 abortions just last year. And that sheer number shows what kind of social consequences might be ahead. I mean, we know, for example, that one indicator of future poverty is teenage pregnancy. We also have a foster care system that is still in need of improvements. So besides the religious convictions against abortion, which need to be respected, are conservatives really thinking about any social consequences? Or is the thinking of abortion opponents all based on some kind of personal and moral responsibility doctrine? I've always wondered about that. I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, like any movement, there there's a range of perspectives and behaviors by different people, right? So I was just in Texas again last week and spent some time with some anti-abortion organizations who are doing a lot to help uh, pregnant women and single moms, you know, uh, through crisis pregnancy centers that provide, you know, free clothing and diapers and parenting classes, things like that. You know, there are those center, thousands of those all around the country. I also spent some time at a maternity home, actually, outside of Houston for single moms. And I talked to many of them, and many of them truly had nowhere else to go. I mean, one of them told me she had a, a felony and had been turned away from other maternity homes and had you know, difficulty accessing public services because of her criminal record, which was several years old, but it hadn't been enough time yet for her to access those services. You know, Others also had spent time in jail, had very difficult family situations. And so there are, I think it's important to say, there are people in the anti-abortion movement who are doing this kind of work and trying to help. I think the criticism that I hear is that there are systemic problems, there are systemic challenges here, and you know many of these things are at best a Band-Aid, not to mention the questions of bodily autonomy, right, that many people would consider as front and center in this conversation. You mentioned religion. I've done a lot of reporting on the fact that while you know there is strong opposition to abortion, in conservative Christianity and, and much of Christianity, other religions often take a different view. Judaism, Islam take a different view of abortion than, than traditionally um, conservative Christianity has. And, and even, you know, mainline Protestants and more progressive Christians often support abortion rights as well. So it is to some extent in many people's minds a religious question. And I, I, I tend to shy away from saying you know, entire groups of people aren't trying to help. I think that's that's unfair. But I think there are certainly folks who oppose abortion who are trying to help women who have unplanned pregnancies. But I think at the same time, I've also spent time in a Planned Parenthood center in Illinois where women are calling in desperate to come up with enough money, you know, to stay in a hotel or eat a meal while they're there for an abortion. So there is a lot of desperate need. And I think it's unclear you know, there is a lot of a lot of research that suggests that lack of access to abortion increases poverty. And so, you know, we will be, be watching how this unfolds in the years to come. So I'm just curious at a high level as we look historically, do you think that this narrative is accurate, that the anti-abortion movement has just been more organized 
and thinking long term to get to the point where Dobbs is overturned while the abortion rights side maybe hasn't been as strategic and engaged. I think if you look at the outcome, that certainly appears to be true. And Democrats themselves are saying saying this. I talked to Senator Patty Murray the day after the Dobbs decision came down, and she expressed frustration with the Biden administration, uh, just as one example, for not having a plan in place. Obviously, there's only so much that the Biden administration can do with the federal courts not on their side. But she said to me, I asked them for a plan on day one. This is day two. And it wasn't as if the decision was a surprise, considering that almost an identical decision had leaked uh, on May 2nd. So I am hearing that frustration from Democratic leaders, Democratic activists. But at the same time, you know, I've been covering this issue for, for several years, as you know, and I have talked to activists who were trying to message around this issue for years who express a lot of frustration with why the message wasn't getting through. You know, they said, we've been saying for a long time that abortion is effectively unavailable in much of the country, which was true. There were already something like at least half a dozen states that only had one abortion clinic even before this decision came down. And the number of clinics in many states like Texas had been eroding over time because of restrictions and stigma and a host of other reasons. So... This is it's not like this was a surprise to anyone, really. This has been the goal of the anti-abortion movement for almost 50 years. How exactly the abortion rights movement failed to prevent it, I think, will be probably the subject of books and dissertations. But I think there's something to that argument. Sure. The other thing that I would point out is that I think that abortion was largely taken for granted for a long time uh, as sort of a settled issue. It had been law. I mean, I'm 41 years old. Uh, Roe v. Wade happened almost a decade before I was born. I think, you know, there's been an entire generation of women who have grown up with it as a right. And so at the same time, opponents of abortion were very focused on trying to, to change that. They were in sort of the offensive position, you could say, going after this issue, making it a campaign issue. And I think it may have just been easier to rally voters around changing something that was framed as an injustice rather than preserving an existing right. Well, Sarah McCammon, it has been great talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Sarah McCammon is a national correspondent for NPR. Today, you heard from WABE Sam Greenglass and Susanna Capaluto, Axios's Emma Hurt. Georgia Votes 2022 is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. We had help from WABE health reporter Jess Mador. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Check out our other WABE podcast, including Political Breakfast with Lisa Rayum and TechCast with Emil Moffitt. If you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at georgiavotes at wabe.org. I'm Raul Bally. We'll see you next week. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.